Good morning. Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word. We're going to be reading from John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. It will also be on the screen behind me. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Our text for today, John 15, 12 through 17, begins and ends with love one another. We like that statement. It's a great statement. We like to love and we like to be loved, but really when we step back from that statement just a little bit, we realize that we fall short. Here's why. When we talk about love, we often define love on our own terms and our own conditions, complete with limits and exceptions, right? We have a unique way to limit the love that we give, mainly because we are self-centered and self-serving, and so then we define the practice of love accordingly. What about the one another section of that? That command from Christ that we should love one another, well, we determine who the one another is as well, don't we? The recipients that we give love to or don't give love to, we are tremendously selective in our own definition of one another. But who, are, who is the one another that Christ is referencing in this passage? Well, in this scenario, he's telling the disciples to look to their left and to their right. That's the one another. And so I would say to us, the one another today at Old North Church are those that are in front of you, those that are behind you, those that are to your left and to your right. These are the one another's. And so we have been commanded by Christ to love one another. But we struggle with that, as I said. Our human heart and our condition, we tend, to put it nicely, to misinterpret the commands of God, the commands of Jesus. And so Jesus, in his goodness, tells us how we should love one another and gives us a qualifier that we cannot misinterpret. And that qualifier is, as I have loved you. In that statement, Christ sets the standard and the extent that we are to love one another with. But the question in our mind comes up, well, how can we love like Christ loved? We're not Christ. 
And so there starts the cycle over again of misinterpreting and lessening the commands that Christ gives us. And I would say to us today that the reason that we play this mental gymnastics with the commands of Christ regarding love one another as he has loved us is because we have forgotten just how much Jesus loved us. And friends, when we forget the extent that Christ loved us too, then the selfish heart that resides within us becomes our guide. We, when we fail to surrender to the selfless love of Jesus, then the selfish reign of your heart will guide you. And so today, we start with this idea that the greater love of Jesus compels our great love for one another. And so as we begin our time, I want us to focus on how great the love of Jesus is. Just let that roll over you today. How great is the love of Jesus? And in this text that we have in front of us, we can see four ways where Jesus shows how great his love is. First, in verses 13 and 14, he tells us that greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And so the greatness of Jesus' love is found in the fact that he laid down his life. You see, laying down your life for someone means that that person needs to have someone to protect them. They're in a vulnerable state. They're in immediate danger. They need someone to take what is coming to them. And so the connotation here for the disciples then and for us now is that they were in a place of danger and it's only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that then they would be safe. And the same is true for us today. There was a death sentence in their hearts then. There is a death sentence in our hearts now. And we know that that death sentence is the sin that resides in us. Paul does a good job of describing what that sin looks like as we live. If you've wondered if you're a sinner, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, will help you understand whether you are or are not. He says that those who are dead in their trespasses and sins are evidenced this way. They follow the course of this world. They follow the prince of the power of the air of this world, that is the devil. And the spirit that is now at work in them is in the sons of disobedience. And we all once lived in those passions, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And so we were, by nature, children of wrath. That disease of sin that resides within us causes us to become Dead men walking, we are exposed and fully exposed to the wrath of the holy God. And that sin that is within us is something that we cannot take care of on our own. We cannot lay ourselves down to undo it. It is there. We are bound by it. We are enslaved by it. We are attacked by it. We are damned by it. Until Jesus... 2 Corinthians 5, 21, the Apostle Paul says this about our Savior Jesus. He who knew no sin became sin. We know our sin. We live with it. We are exposed to it. We know the offense that is to the Holy God. Think for a second. Those sins that are in your life, those embarrassing sins, those shocking sins, those stunning sins, sins, those shameful sins, those hurtful sins, those things that are in your life that you pray that no one ever knows about you. 
Those our Savior Jesus took as if they were his very own sin. He who knew no sin became sin. And Paul finishes out the reason for that statement in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How great is the love of Jesus that in him we who are subjects of wrath no longer are subjects to wrath but now have become righteous before God Almighty. That's how great the love of Jesus is and he laid down his life for you. Secondly, how great is the love of Jesus? In your text in verse 15, we see that he now calls his disciples friends. To be called a servant of Jesus is an immeasurable privilege, but to be called friends, unbelievable. And his disciples had to be in this place when they heard him say that, they had to think, There's, this is unbelievable. There's no way I'm your friend, but he has made them friends. He has called them friends. There's great strength in friendship, isn't there? There's great hope in friendship and a true friendship. When I was in third grade, we had just moved to Canton, Ohio from Cleveland, Tennessee. We lived in Tennessee for a short time and then moved back to Ohio to a new city. And I was in a new school in a new town in a completely new environment. And so I was nervous. My mom and dad dropped me off to school that day and I went to the office and the office, the principal took me to my locker to make sure that I knew where I was going. She left me at my locker and I started putting all my belongings into the locker there. And as I was putting all my belongings in the locker, I realized that I had forgotten my lunch at home. I realized that I had no money for lunch. And you can imagine that as a third grader, that is pretty much the worst thing that can happen to you on the first day of your, uh, at a new school. And so I did what any third grade boy would do at that point in time. I put my head in my locker and I started to cry. And I'm in the locker crying because that's where you cry and no one can see you when you're crying in the locker. And then suddenly I felt a tap on my shoulder and it was a young guy who had come up, a third grade boy who had come up next to me and his locker was right next to mine and he tapped me on my shoulder and he said words that I will never forget my entire life. He looked at me and he said, hey, we have the same trapper keeper. <laughs> and what's remarkable about that is that my trapper keeper was that horrific one that had a hot air balloon on it. <laughs> that my mom had got me on sale. And then he said, you can sit next to me. His name was Kyriakos and he was my best friend. And because of Kyriakos that day, things turned around. Friendship does that to us, doesn't it? It changes the outlook on life of an otherwise dire situation. And so here in this passage of John chapter 13 through John chapter 16, we actually have a pretty dire situation for the disciples as Christ is preparing them for the moment that he ascends to the cross and they watch their friend and savior die. He is preparing them by telling them, friends, as I do these things, know this, that I am your friend. And so all that it means to be a friend, you hold on to as you witness these things. And so what does it mean that Jesus is our friend? It means that he draws near to us in our suffering. 
It means that he remains in our stumbling. In 2 Timothy 2.13, we are told that he is faithful and we are faithless. It means that he lets us into his heart and he knows ours. And it means that he loves us deeply and completely. For even as he begins this farewell discourse in John 13.1, the first verse, is, is, it says that he loved his disciples to the end, or completely. But this isn't some flippant friendship as if Jesus is your pal or your buddy or even as a few years ago, the t-shirts that were out, Jesus is my homeboy. It's not that type of friendship. For Jesus is still our cosmic ruler. Jesus is majestic. And it is he who is mighty. The Bible tells us that Jesus rides on the heavens and his excellency is in the sky. The Bible goes on to tell us that it is he who is mightier than the noise of many waters. And before Jesus, a fire goes and he burns up his enemies around him. And in Jesus, the earth quakes and the hills melt. In Jesus, he is the one who sits on the circle of the earth, and all the inhabitants of the earth are as grasshoppers. Jesus is the one who inhabits eternity, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and of whose dominion shall never end. This is Jesus, and he calls you friend. And that does not reflect any merit on our part, but it ref reflects the immensity of his goodness and his grace. How great is the love of Jesus? Thirdly, in verse 15, the love of Jesus is shown to us because he has revealed the mysteries of the Father to us. In verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples and to us, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I heard from my father I have made known to you. A servant doesn't know the plan and the intent of the master, only the command. However, not so with us. Because of the great love of Jesus, we now know those great mysteries of salvation. We now know those great mysteries of deliverance. We now know the gospel plan that the prophets before us tried to discern and understand. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Peter writes, Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to come, they searched and they inquired carefully. I wonder if you've ever thought about that process for the prophets. Think about this. The prophets would be inspired by God to pen these words down, and then they would study the very words that they penned down to try to figure out what they meant. In times past, God's people were not informed of God's saving plan to the full measure that the disciples of Jesus are now informed. And Christ, as he speaks to his disciples, promises them that even as he leaves, he will give them another, the Holy Spirit, to grant them even more information and even greater comprehension of the plan of God. We know these things in full because the Spirit of God has been given to us and tells us these things. The mysteries of God has been revealed to us so that we might then bow before him. That's how great the love of God is. And lastly, Jesus, as he speaks to his disciples here in verse 16, shows us how great his love is by saying to us, you did not choose me, but I chose you. 
He has chosen us. And what that means is that salvation that is ours is ours because he gave it to us. It is his sufficiency. It is his completed work, not ours. It means that we cannot lose it because he gave it to us. He has chosen us, so therefore the friendship and the love of Jesus Christ will never depart us. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, says that the love and the security that Jesus Christ has for his children decays not. So he has chosen us, therefore the Father's revelations to us are given to us not because we warrant it or because we can figure it out. They're given to us because he has decided to give them to us. He, chose us, he has chosen us means that we are sustained by his friendship and in his presence that guides and carries us to the end. And the disciples and us today were told that we were chosen. We did not choose him. And so that means that our confidence is found in his call and not our ability. How great is the love of Jesus? The great love of Jesus has secured our destiny before God. The great love of Jesus has given us a new position before God. The great love of Jesus has revealed the beauty and intricacy of the gospel. The great love of Jesus has secured us and will sustain us all the days that our God gives us. And so I ask you again, how great is the love of Jesus? It's so great that it demands a response. And so as Christ speaks to his disciples there, such great love demands a great response. And what is that great response? And in the time that we have left, we need to figure out how we should be responding to this great love that has been given to us. And the first thing is found in verse 14. Obey. We should obey his call and his command upon us in verse 14, Jesus says to his disciples, you are my friends if you do what I command you. That's not a statement that you must do this in order to be his friend, but rather you do these things because you are his friend. You obey him because of his great love. Seven times in chapters 14 and 15, Jesus tells his disciples that if you are his friend or if you love him, you will obey him. And so obedience is the mark of one who is a friend of Jesus. In particular, in this section, obedience looks like loving one another. And so Jesus says to his disciples, as you grow together as my children of God, please obey me by loving one another. And as you obey and love one another, people will recognize that you are a friend of Jesus. And they will recognize the great love of Jesus. So obedience to his command is our first response. Secondly, in this passage, verse 16, notice that Jesus says to them, after he says that he has chosen them, that he has appointed them that they should go. Now, when you read that, the idea of go should kind of stand out to you as a little bit of a language that is familiar to Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. You're familiar with that passage. You see, when we are moved by the great love of Jesus, then we go, <laughs> and we tell others about the great love of Jesus. And since we are friends with Jesus, we are eager to share the goodness of Jesus with people. I wonder, are you eager to share the love of Jesus? 
Here's what eagerness looks like, by the way. Eagerness looks like viewing relationships with men and women as prime opportunities to speak the greatness of Jesus into their life. It means that you look at your days differently. It means that your days now are seen not as toil and labor, but as opportunity and possibility to speak of the love of Jesus. And so we live with an idea that we are to make much of the name of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon says, to be a soul winner is the happiest thing in the world. And with every soul you bring to Jesus Christ, you seem to get a new heaven here upon earth. May we be active to that. May the great love of Jesus inspire us to that. Thirdly, the great love of Jesus and our response to it means that we live a fruit-filled, vine-sustained life. Verse 16, once again, Christ says that we should produce fruit that should abide. What is the fruit that we should produce? Well, a branch only produces the fruit that the vine enables it to produce. And so we have to ask, what does the vine desire? What does Jesus, the vine, desire? Well, we know that he has come to save those that are lost. So therefore, the branches that produce fruit will produce fruit of drawing men and women to himself. The fruit that we produce will not draw men to us. It will not draw men to an organization. A vine-sustained life draws men to the vine. In short, you will lead men and women to Jesus. And fourth, the great response to the great love of Jesus is that we have a great love for one another. A love that follows the standard that Jesus has set before us, the sacrificial love that is rooted in the, G the love of Jesus for all. Some of you went through small groups this last fall and we studied the book of 1 John. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, it is written, by this we know love that, the, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The sacrificial example of Jesus is not meant for us to observe and have some general response, but it is meant to change very specific engage, engagements with one another. And so, I want to offer a few. How do we respond to the great love of Jesus, the sacrificial love of Jesus, to one another here? What does great love look like at Old North Church? Let's start small. We should know one another. I imagine there are people around you in a church this size that you don't know their name. You see them every week and you say, hey, sport, or hey, chief. Go learn their name. Be with one another in such a way that you can call each other by the name, that you can know one another, that you can follow up with one another, know one another, and secondly, follows right after it. Give time to one another. Time is such a commodity in today's world, isn't it? Give time for one another. Talk to one another. Engage one another. Listen to one another. Ask questions of one another. Third, pray for one another. Huh. When you say that you want to pray for somebody, oh, I'll pray for you, pray for them. Right there. Don't use I'll pray for you as an excuse to get away from the conversation. Pray for them right there and then follow up on that prayer. 
It means this, that we are ultimately concerned for one another's vine life. (laughs) We help one another grow and anticipate the day that Jesus Christ will return. We check in on one another's spiritual growth. How are you, brother? How can the hope of God be settled in your heart this week? It means that we are patient with one another. And it means that we have the love to confront and the patience to bear with one another. Because of the great love of Jesus, there is no limit to the ways that we should love one another. And as you look around this room at Old North Church, if there are limits in your mind, I pray that we will lay those things down and live in obedience to the call of Christ. In the 15th century, in a tiny village near Nuremberg, lived a family with 18 children. In order to keep food on the table, the father and head of the household, he worked 18 hours a day. Despite their seemingly hopeless condition, two of this man's children decided that they had a dream and they both wanted to pursue their talent for art. But they knew full well that their father would never be able to financially support them. And so they had many discussions about how this could happen. And as they talked about the way in which somebody could go to college and university to pursue their talent in art, they finally came out a plan. They finally developed a plan. They would toss a coin. The loser would go down and work in the nearby mines and use his earnings from being a miner to support the brother as he learned art. And then when that brother who was at university would finish after four years, he'd return and either through the earnings of his art or by working in the mine himself would support the other brother as he went and worked on his art. So one Sunday after church, they tossed a coin. Albrecht Durer won and he went off to university. His brother Albert went down into the dangerous mines, and for the next four years, he financed his brother, whose work at the academy was an immediate success. Albrecht's etchings, his woodworks, his oils were immediately better than his professors. And by the time he graduated, he was earning considerable fees for the sale of his work. When the young artist returned to his village, the Durer family held a festive dinner to celebrate Albrecht's triumphant return. And after a long and memorable meal, Albrecht rose from his honored position at the head of the table to toast his beloved brother. He wanted to toast his brother for the years of sacrifice that enabled him to fulfill his dream. And so he stood and he said, and now Albert, blessed brother of mine, it is now your turn. Now, You can go to Nuremberg and you can pursue your dream and I will take care of you. And all heads turned at the table to see Albert, the brother, crying, shaking his head over and over and saying, no, 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 no. And finally, Albert rose when he got himself together and could speak and he said, brother, I cannot go to Nuremberg It's too late for me. Look, look what four years in the mines have done to my hands. The bones in every finger have been broken. 
And I have arthritis so badly in my hands that I cannot even hold a glass, let alone a paintbrush or a pen. For me, brother, it is too late. Albrecht produced much art throughout his career. But there's one piece that is known as his masterpiece. And it's simply called Hands. It's a drawing of his brother Albert's hands. And it's a reminder of great sacrifice. And so friends, we know the hands of Jesus. The great sacrifice of our Savior. And so may we live in response to that. And may our response be that our hands are used to serve one another. As Christ began and ended this segment with love one another, my prayer for us today is that our lives from start to finish might reflect that great love for one another without limit. For as we have been greatly loved by Jesus, so we should greatly love one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time and your word. Thank you, Lord, for your great love poured out upon us through your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you, Father, that in him we have the forgiveness of our sins, that in him we who were once far off have been brought near, that in him we who once resided in darkness now live in your marvelous light. And so we celebrate your great love through the redemption of humanity. Thank you, Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that we as a church would serve one another without limit, that we would love one another in such a way that your great love is both known here at this church and in this community as the world watches. We thank you, Father, for your great love, and we pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.